Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, writers, and welcome to Free MFA, a podcast about writing that hopes to help you become a better writer. Today, we're talking about beginnings. How do you start? Start in a way that captivates the reader. Start in a way that assumes the reader does not have time for your piece, but still grabs them by the lapels and says, look, you've got to read this and show them why. Don't assume anyone wants your writing. You have to make them want it. You've got to quickly let your reader know that this is a character they must follow or a journey they must take right now. There's lots of different opening strategies, so I'm going to run through a few of them and talk through some great examples. I was inspired to do this episode after I read the opening graph of John Jeremiah Sullivan's recent New Yorker article, Rihanna Giddens and What Folk Means. Sullivan's a great writer, but I only had a minute with his piece. I was sitting in the car waiting for my son to get out of school, and I read the first graph, and then my son came out and I had to put the magazine down, but I was already hooked because in that short, straightforward opening graph, Sullivan put two enticing questions into my mind that made me say, I cannot wait to get back to this piece. Sullivan began to grasp the significance of what the 21st century folk singer Rhiannon Giddens has been attempting it is necessary to know about another North Carolina musician, Frank Johnson, who was born almost 200 years before she was. He was the most important African-American musician of the 19th century, but he has been almost entirely forgotten. Never mind a Wikipedia page, he doesn't even earn a footnote in source books on early black music. And yet, after excavating the records of his career, from old newspapers, diaries, travel logs, memoirs, letters, and after reckoning with the scope of his influence, one struggles to come up with a plausible rival. And with that, I can't get Frank Johnson out of my head. I'm a student of black history and of music history, and I've never heard of him. Not only has Sullivan heard of him, but he's read the man's diaries, travel logs, memoirs, and letters. So I've got two big questions. Who was this epic figure, and why has he been all but erased from history? Those are two questions that have me ready to follow Sullivan anywhere. If you can create a big, enticing question that the reader is curious about, you've got them hooked. There's so many ways to do that. Malcolm Gladwell is great at that, at giving you an enticing question you can't turn away from. He starts his debut book, The Tipping Point, with one of them. He wrote, For Hush Puppies, the classic American brush suede shoes with the lightweight crepe sole, the tipping point came somewhere between late 1994 and early 1995. I'm going to keep reading the opening, but I want to pause to point out that The sentence revolves around the notion of a tipping point and when the tipping point happened for this product. It's clear right away that Hush Puppies will be an example, not the center. 
I don't care about hush puppies, wouldn't be caught dead in them, and I would not read a lengthy discussion of hush puppies. My wife has a subscription to footwear news. I never open it. But I'm curious about the notion of a tipping point. And Gladwell knows tipping points are way more interesting than hush puppies. So he has that first sentence land on when the tipping point arrived for this product, keeping the focus on tipping points and not on these shoes. I like that Gladwell does not define the tipping point here at the top. He pushes forward into the story and leaves that tantalizing phrase as a breadcrumb for us to follow into the book. I think most people will instantly know what tipping point means, but it's the title of the book. It's the center of his thesis, so he's got to define it eventually. But at this first mention, he leaves it alone and lets it be an enticing question. What exactly is a tipping point? Okay, back to Gladwell in the text. The brand had been all but dead until that point. Sales were down to 30,000 payers a year, mostly to backwoods outlets and small-town family stores. Wolverine, the company that makes Hush Puppies, was thinking of phasing out the shoes that made them famous. But then something strange happened. Okay, stop. Gladwell is telling a story, and people love stories. It's always great to launch into a little story right at the beginning. It really sucks people into your text. But in Gladwell's little story... The main character is a product. It can't talk. But we feel for the character because it's cute and it almost died. So when he says it had a miraculous recovery, we're like, why? It makes the whole notion of a tipping point seem so dramatic. Gladwell is building up the enticing question, what is a tipping point, by telling us the story of Hush Puppies, while, of course, leaving out for now the core of the story, which is the strange something that happened that changed everything. If you want to know what that is, you've got to stick around and read more. Okay, I'm going to skip the next two and a half graphs. They're good, but they're just Gladwell showing examples of how the fashion world suddenly and magically fell in love with hush puppies. It's the characters rise from the ashes to glory. Let's pick up the beginning of the tipping point at the end of the last graph of the opening, where Gladwell gets down to business and actually gives us the enticing question that will suck us into the book and make us want to follow him through the rest of it. The opening ends with the core question that he's been setting up the whole time. He writes, quote, No one was trying to make hush puppies a trend, yet somehow that's exactly what happened. The shoes passed a certain point in popularity and they tipped. How does a $30 pair of shoes go from a handful of downtown Manhattan hipsters and designers to every mall in America in the space of two years? There's his enticing question that should make us want to keep reading. How did this happen? How was this tipping point reached? We'll get there through hush puppies, but of course, we're not really here to talk about hush puppies. Notice how the shoe does not get named in that last sentence. He just says a $30 pair of shoes, like he's dismissing them or deconstructing them, breaking them down to their essence. No, we're here to talk about tipping points. So Gladwell leaves you with an enticing question that shows you what the book is going to be about. He doesn't answer the question because it's like a TV cliffhanger that makes you want to keep going, that makes you wonder what happened next. Even in nonfiction, we can inspire that sense of what happened next and make readers want to continue. Another great way to start is by talking about a character. 
Start by describing the central character, but describing them in a way that's germane to the story by using details that help propel the story in the direction the rest of the book or the essay or whatever is going to go. I don't care about what the person looks like. I probably don't need to know that. I need to know why the character matters. Quiet as it's kept, Michelle Alexander's mind-blowing book, The New Jim Crow, is a very elegantly written book. As far as public policy books go, it's damn near prose poetry. Alexander's opening is so memorable, so visual, and such a great example of a character who is a perfect start for her story, someone who sets the right tone for the rest of the book. Alexander begins, Jarvius Cotton cannot vote. Like his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather, he has been denied the right to participate in our electoral democracy. Cotton's family tree tells the story of several generations of black men who were born in the United States, but who were denied the most basic freedom that democracy promises, the freedom to vote for those who will make the rules and laws that govern one's life. Cotton's great-great-grandfather could not vote as a slave. His great-grandfather was beaten to death by the Ku Klux Klan for attempting to vote. His grandfather was prevented from voting by Klan intimidation. His father was barred from voting by poll taxes and literacy tests. Today, Jarvis Cotton cannot vote because he, like many black men in the United States, has been labeled a felon and is currently on parole. It's like a Russian doll of racism. I can see each one of the men in this family being banned for voting for these varying reasons that are ultimately the same reason, systemic racism. I see the linking of the men in the family as a way of linking them to all of us. They are related to each other and to the extended African-American family and the injustice done to each of them was also done to us. But more importantly, Alexander makes clear with this example that there's a direct connection between slavery and mass incarceration, which is exactly what her book is all about. Like Gladwell, she's given us the thesis of the book in miniature right at the beginning. That's a really good opening strategy because it draws you in so tightly. It's like the way Beyonce starts a lot of her songs with the chorus so she can really propel you into the song. I love when she does that. Try to think of a beginning that can encapsulate your thesis. You can also begin in a way that suggests you're going to take people on a journey to a place they definitely want to go to. Ta-Nehisi Coates opens his famous piece, My President Was Black Like This. In the waning days of President Barack Obama's administration, he and his wife Michelle hosted a farewell party, the full import of which no one could then grasp. Coates then goes on to describe said party, including the presence of one Dave Chappelle and some of the jokes he spat. Don't you want to follow Coates into the final party Barack and Michelle threw at the White House, a party Dave Chappelle attended? Of course you do. Now, you may not have an historical event to describe at the start of your piece, but if you can start with a moment, some enticing moment, if you can tell readers, come on, I'm going to take you into an awesome scene, then I bet they'll follow you. And you can do this around a literal place, like an Obama party, or a figurative place, like a thought exercise that they'll find fun. By that I mean you can propose to take them on an intellectual journey into an idea or a thought process that they'll find interesting. My man David Foster Wallace begins his legendary essay on Roger Federer like this. Almost anyone who loves tennis and follows the men's tour on TV has, over the last few years, had what might be termed Federer moments. 
These are times watching the young Swiss at play when the jaw drops and eyes protrude and sounds are made that bring spouses in from other rooms to see if you're okay. The moments are more intense if you've played enough to understand the impossibility of what you just saw him do. We've all got our examples. Here is one. And with that, Wallace takes us into the world of amazing memories made from watching the sublime artist named Roger Federer. If you love tennis or just appreciate Fed, that's a world of thoughts you definitely want to go into. Ultimately, at the beginning, the writer has got to help the reader see that you are a trustworthy custodian of their time. And you can do that by establishing a bit of fidelity with the reader by making them feel like we think in similar ways. We feel the same about important things. We understand each other. To that end, you may choose to start by talking about an idea about life that readers will probably agree with and thus see that you are like them, just with better articulation. That's so much of what a writer is. I'm like you with better articulation. For example, one of the great openings of all time from the legendary Zora Neale Hurston, their eyes are watching God. Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now, women forget all those things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. She's making grandiose generalizations about the nature of men and women, but it feels true. And it makes me think Zora is wise. She understands people and humanity at a deep level. And I would be smart to sit a while and listen to her. This is a risky strategy because if you make a big pronouncement about life or you mark some important dichotomy, if you say, OK, there's two types of people in the world and the reader disagrees with you, then you've probably lost that reader. Maybe that's fine. Maybe they weren't for you, but just be careful if you're going to start by saying something big. Make sure you're correct. As usual, I spent most of the show deconstructing great texts and looking at what smart writers do because that's one of the two main techniques in any MFA program. The other main technique MFAs use to teach writing is the crit, where teachers and students take your piece and rip it to shreds and give you tons of notes on how to make it better. Every writer needs that, someone who will read the piece and rip it up in a loving way and help you become better. That's crucial to your development as a writer. If you want me to be that tough but loving reader for you and your book, email me at bookcoach at torre.com or go to my site, torrebookcoach.com, and we can talk about it. And don't miss my other podcast, Torre Show, where I interview people about success. Thanks for listening to Free MFA, because the world needs writers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 